This is Science Moab, a radio show exploring the science and learning about the scientists from Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. I'm Christina, and on today's show, we talk about how natural springs in the desert can be sources of biodiversity and cultural significance. It's a good show recorded for you from Moab, Utah. Stay tuned. Springs is a cross-culturally important place that harbors a biodiversity of elevated cultural significance. And that's one reason that I became really interested in springs as sources and centers of past human activity. Today on Science Moab, we're speaking with David Sabata. David recently completed his master's degree from Northern Arizona University in Flagstaff, and there he studied springs within the Grand Staircase Escalante Monument as a means to understand human settlement across the landscape. Here with David, we discuss why springs are centers of biodiversity and cultural importance, and how they can tell us about the movements and interactions of past people. We begin our interview with David talking about the types and frequencies of springs in the Grand Staircase Escalante area. There's something about being in the desert, a really hot, dry place during the work season, and it's a sea of sand or red rock, and you're walking along out there, and then you see the bright green top of a cottonwood tree in the distance. And you're like, I know there's water there. There's shade there. There's a cool place. I can sit down and have lunch. Right? There's life there. Water is life. And in the Grand Staircase area, those sorts of places are on average about a half-day walk from one another. Maybe like 15 to 20 miles across the landscape. And you've got to find that place where one geologic horizon sort of meets the other. Where there's an underlying rock layer that's basically impermeable. At which that aquifer can kind of seep out onto the landscape. So the most common type of spring you find is a spring in the bottom of a riparian drainage where that hard rock layer is and just a little bit of water meets the surface of that drainage bottom. Or also sometimes in the vicinity of the bases of cliffs, you know, you get that same kind of seep action from those aquifers, right? That really, I think, was the most important factor in the determining of human settlement its subsistence patterns across the landscape and that's one reason that i became really interested in springs as sources and centers of past human activity over time and cross-culturally what kind of groups of people have historically and currently interacted with the springs in the grand staircase because area because of the cross-cultural importance of water, you've got to have it or you're going to die. We all depend on it. Springs have long been sources of trustable water, but some springs are better than others. Some put out more water or less water or higher quality or lower quality of water. We all rely on springs. Today, the springs on the staircase are most heavily relied upon by the ranchers who graze their mostly cattle out there, and they've been doing so for about 140 years now, that's been ongoing since and they kind of bumped Paiute people out off of springs, which were so important to Paiute people that they were actually passed down 
hereditarily and the loss of their springs that coincides directly with the loss of like 90 something percent of the Paiute population in a 30 year period of the late 19th century. What other indigenous groups, either through the archaeological record or through cultural knowledge, have interacted <coughs> with the springs in this area? So the Paiute were the most numerous recent inhabitants that were known to live in the Grand Staircase area prior to Mormon colonization. But other peoples, uh, Navajo peoples, Ute peoples, had historical interactions in this area uh, that we know of based on oral history and um, ethnographic documentation. Um, Navajo peoples collected plants and engaged in nomadic pastoralism on the eastern end of the monument up into the historical era. Ute peoples came and traded with and interacted with the Paiute peoples and probably also the Navajo folks. And then archaeologically moving back in time, we can identify the Paiute presence in the area through a distinctive brownware pottery tradition, going back probably a thousand years. And they occupied places that were very similar to the folks that we think were there before them, just generally speaking, different Puebloan peoples. There's a number of different groups within what we kind of call the Puebloan complex of you know, cultural communities here in the Four Corners and Southwest, and that each have their own distinctive histories and such. But what we see archaeologically in the Grand Staircase area is a really interesting interaction between what I like to think of as sort of the Aztecan language-based Puebloan communities and some later folks that came along and had interaction with those Puebloan communities that eventually resulted in those folks' adoption of Puebloan lifeways, like farming, corn, beans, and squash, and engaging in these seasonal rounds of resource procurement. And uh, those folks, the archaeologists generally refer to as the Fremont, which were known to inhabit this area. You study specifically culturally significant areas. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted you to explain what those are, and then we can start going into why springs might be especially culturally significant. My field is usually called cultural resource management. And the idea is that we as archaeologists will go forth and using our tools of archaeology discover places of traditional significance that we might protect them and hopefully learn from them. Unfortunately, over time, what I've realized is that this has meant that places of significance to archaeologists have become emphasized and that those values might not always reflect the values of the indigenous descendants of the peoples we like to study. And this realization occurred to me in a very personal way um, while working as an archaeologist here in southwestern Utah with traditional Paiute cultural elder women. I was employed as an archaeologist with stop work authority to assist these Paiute cultural elder women in case they had a cultural concern that needed to be addressed. Being an archaeologist, I was excited to be out there with you know, these indigenous women and, uh, and to be finding archaeology. And I kept running up to this Paiute elder woman with broken arrowheads and saying, wow, look at what I found. This woman said one day, this is our trash. She's like, we kept the good stuff. I was like, well, then what is really important in working over weeks and, and months with these women? it became really apparent that what mattered more to them than the dispersed scattering of 
this prehistoric trash really was the living heritage of the plants, the thousand-year-old juniper, the 500-year-old pinion, the roos, the rose, and the traditional cultural importance of these plants became an object of intense interest for me, and I started asking a lot of questions, and thankfully uh, these women were open with me in sharing the traditional cultural importance of these plants. And I asked myself, and what could I do as an archaeologist to better acknowledge the importance of these natural features that we're not considering or accounting for in archaeology? And that's really what motivated me to return to school at Northern Arizona University to study with indigenous peoples what culturally significant natural features have really drawn human activity and pattern and shaped that over the millennia. What made you land on wanting to study springs as potential sources of high cultural significance? The Paiute women that I worked with, they emphasized the importance of water and water places in their settlement and subsistence. Um, as I mentioned earlier, in the semi-arid west, the paramount importance of water for the survival of humans becomes readily apparent. But at the Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument where I was working, I quickly learned that 90-something percent of animal life depend on these springs. A biodiversity of elevated cultural significance became of intense interest to me, and everything I read ethnographically and historically from the Mormon colonization of places like Pipe Springs or the Flagstaff Peaks to the building of the temple in St. George on top of a sacred Paiute spring indicated to me that these are places of intense cultural significance that are worthy of greater investigation. So I hypothesized, as I think a lot of people would, that in vicinity of springs, we're going to find a lot more culturally significant biodiversity and more archaeology. I tried to develop this tool, this approach by which we could assess the significance of these places to help prioritize land management actions such as preservation or even ecological restoration. You talk about culturally significant biodiversity, and I was wondering mm -hmm. if you could explain what that means. In approaching this question of what plants are culturally significant on the landscape, I consulted a number of ethnographies and sources on Paiute and Puebloan and uh, Navajo plants' uses, and I thought one way of coming up with an assessment of these plants' significance would be to count the uses of plants. And so I accumulated more than a thousand uses of 70-something genera of plants that I encountered during my surveys to help calculate the significance of these spring sites. So it's a quantification of qualitative data, and it's based on the work of Richard Stoffel of uh, University of Arizona and a lot of work he's done with Paiute peoples and stuff. So it's kind of a simplification of his methods. For instance, cockleburr, which is kind of a prickly little thing that clings to your soft, fuzzy clothes, right? I found one use for that plant. I came across a Paiute oral history that if you were attracted to someone and you left cockleburr in their path and it stuck to them, then they would uh, become stuck to you perhaps in relationship. So that's a cute single use to 113 uses of juniper, which is the most uses I counted for any species in the landscape. And it's just an incredibly versatile plant for so many edible 
medicinal, craft, ceremonial, and other purposes. Some plants are more ubiquitous than others or more common than others. Juniper, while incredibly common, are incredibly significant. But when you think about that as compared to plants that rely on water sources for their survival, and you think about the scarcity of water in these semi-arid environments, a cottonwood might be a thousand times as rare as a juniper on the landscape. And so even though I think I only counted something like 40-something uses of cottonwood, those uses tend to be, for the most part, ceremonial. Plants associated with water take on this elevated importance, I think, in Puebloan cultures. Um, and, and you see that through, uh, a lot of times, the ceremonial uses of those plants. What kind of biodiversity are we talking about in the springs of the Southwest? At the Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument, they've documented over 1,200 species of plants. So it's an incredible biodiversity. It's uh, the largest protected area in the United States, and it has... 90-something percent, I think, of Utah's threatened and endangered species just generally. But that's, you know, really just speaking to the plant's diversity. The animal diversity is really kind of off the chart. We really don't know what that is. So one study of bees yielded 600-something species, and that's just one family of animal, right? So we really have no idea what the biodiversity is with respect to a lot of these smaller creatures of nature. And some of those found in vicinity of some of these remote springs might be the only ones of their type out there. Montezuma's well, for instance, southwest of Flagstaff, I think is home to three or four endemic species found nowhere else. In these areas where there are a large accumulation of culturally significant biodiversity, such as areas around springs, did you see a relationship between culturally significant areas mm -hmm. and archaeological material culture? Yeah. So I hypothesized that there would be a greater uh, abundance of culturally significant biodiversity in vicinity of springs and more archaeology, and that both of those things would sort of reflect the cultural significance of these places. I visited about half of the named and mapped springs on the Grand Staircase. It's about 2 million acres in size, and I visited about 75 of the 150 or so named and mapped springs on the monument. I encountered as well about a half dozen or so unnamed uh, seeps and springs, and I found about 50% uh, more culturally significant biodiversity in vicinity of springs and about 50% more archaeology in vicinity of springs. Can you talk a little bit about how a survey works like what what would you do when you got to an area around a spring in archaeology there's uh, several different intensities of surveys so usually when i'm employed as an archaeologist i'm engaged in a class three intensive 100 percent pedestrian survey so the idea is that you're walking every inch of the ground to find everything out there over 50 years of age to evaluate it for significance in this case i didn't have that kind of uh, time i used a class two sort of a probabilistic or a judgmental survey methodology, which is just a fancy way of saying, you know, I walked to the spring and, and took a 360 degree look around and said, you know, there's a site, you know, because there's an alcove or a nice spot or whatever. And if you think it's a great spot today, right, folks probably thought that a thousand years ago or even 10,000 years ago. You said that these sites could yield a lot of information. Mm-hmm. What makes you say that about a certain site? 
out here in the Southwest, because of the dryness of the climate, um, you have this incredible preservation potential, especially in sheltered contexts like alcoves. And it seems to be sort of a product of the hydrology and geomorphology related to groundwater processes and stuff. In these alcove contexts, you know, you get buried deposits over time. There's windblown material that makes it in there and and other natural erosional processes that bury sediments over time, right? So when we find these alcoves, they're, they're incredible places for archaeologists because they have such a tremendous amount of cultural material that otherwise would have perished or gone away in an open context. In these sheltered contexts, the potential for seeds, for pollen, for different what they call like phytolithic uh, microanalyses is, is remarkable. How closely do springs today resemble their pre-colonial species diversity and hydrology? That's a great question, and I'm afraid that we can't fully know the answer, but I think we can infer, based on the warming and drying trends of the last few decades, I mean, we're like 10 years deep into the worst drought since the 1200s. Thankfully, that might have been broken this uh, wet winter. That is obviously going to impact the flow from these seeps and springs. And in addition to that stress, uh, there's been a great deal of aquifer drilling for domestic water sources, such as agriculture, domestic wells. But now, with the reduction of the monument, we have the threat of extractive industries coming to drill water to facilitate oil, gas, and coal, and other hard rock mining. And I don't think that there is any sustainable extraction rate for you know pulling water in the desert. I, I really don't think there is. I think the water that emerges at seep and spring sources, that's a sustainable source of water as we could have possibly hoped for. And so removing that water from aquifers, uh, such as the you know occur in the Navajo and Wingate formations, the Grand Staircase, is inevitably going to irreparably damage these springs that harbor the vast majority of biodiversity on the landscape. Unfortunately, those kinds of indirect impacts are not currently being considered through NEPA or other environmental or cultural processes that we have to try to look before we leap right like into these sorts of decision making. So that was one. A goal of my work was really to kind of draw attention to how fragile these resources are and how irreparably we might be damaging them, sometimes through well-intended means. What kind of actions do you see that we can take to help restore springs specifically? That's a great question. And I think, again, the indigenous uh, folks of the area are the first and probably best sources to go to in terms of an answer. I have a great respect and admiration for the ability of the Puebloan peoples and uh, the Paiute peoples of, of the area for their survivability in, in areas of, of such marginal resources. And like we mentioned earlier, every you know Hopi village is, is built on top of a spring, basically. And I don't think they let a drop of that water go to waste uh, traditionally. You know, every bit of it was... Uh, managed for irrigation to you know maximize the growth of plants that they had thousands of years of relationship with spring stewardship institute and flagstaff they do tremendous work for springs and they 
averaged climate predictive models like they they had like two dozen climate predictive models and they took uh, all the county by county data throughout the western united states and they applied these models and um and like you said yeah the four corners region all the low-lying areas are going to be especially hard hit by this uh warming and drying trend that we see the middle elevations not quite as badly the higher elevations it's it's going to be slower but there are things that live on top of san francisco peaks you know that are probably going to go away because they can't go any higher up. Has your research been incorporated into management? I wish. I was really hoping it, it would be. I had a lot of support from a lot of great people at the staircase. My boss, Matt Thews Weifel, was tremendously supportive. A former assistant monument manager, Carolyn Shelton, was tremendously supportive. I, I got a lot of support from the, the range staff and, and the different folks, the scientists. I tried to see where everyone was coming from and uh, I got to run around and ask everybody a lot of questions. I did everything I could to learn. As soon as the new administration came along, the Trump administration disbanded the science advisory board that met at the Grand Staircase, which included one of the best ecologists in the world, Doug Reagan, who's worked to protect more natural areas than any person I know of on the face of the earth incredible people and they also had Paiute elder folks on that board and so the decision making process at that point became unfortunately one of uh, you know zinky meeting with industry lobbyists behind closed doors everybody's not on board with that and so there have been you know a lot of great folks working to challenge this potentially illegal downsizing of these monuments in this area and uh, I am happy to say that uh, my research was uh, used by the Natural Resource Defense Council and the Congress of American Indians and is now being used by the Grand Canyon Trust in litigation to help protect these monuments and other natural areas in the region that are being subjected to management decisions that uh, have not fully considered the widest uh, range of human and environmental impacts. What got you interested in studying springs and their relationship with culture. I was born in Germany, but I, I grew up in East Kansas, and my hometown in East Kansas is built on top of a confluence of springs, I guess a half dozen or so. There's one major spring that's been sort of memorialized as a park in the center of town. I love that spring so much. Anyway, there are plants in vicinity of that spring you don't see anywhere else out there. And I go back and I wonder now how many of those plants were brought there from other places. Uh, you know, doing archaeology uh, for a dozen years in the semi-arid, you know, west, I mean, you fall in love with that shady cottonwood tree in the desert. You know, you want to hang out under it. And some of the coolest things I've found have been in vicinity of those places. I found a Navajo sweat lodge in a sand bank of a tributary, a dried up tributary of the Dolores River. You know what? It was in vicinity of the only cottonwood tree, the only patch of willow, the only choke cherry you could see on that whole stretch of river. What do you enjoy about doing this kind of science? Discovery, you know, right? That process of discovery. I mean, the, that green splash against the back bedrock of the desert, that's, that's a miracle. Like a spring is like a little miracle. And if you're thirsty and you're, you're dying, you know, and you come upon it, right? Like you probably think like it was heaven sent or something, right? And the joy of life flourishing in such a small space, 90-something percent of animals depending on that spring, to see them all there, to see the bees coming to take a drink and the bobcat tracks right there and the deer that I accidentally flushed out and 
of course springs were central to hunting and and everything forever because of that right like if you're hungry and you're thirsty there's your water and before long something will come along and you can kill it and eat it in addition to that there's a ton of plants that you know provide great things also so david thank you so much for this interview it's been so cool to talk about springs and hear about their cultural significance in our region thank you so much to listen to this interview with David Sabata again, or any of our past shows, visit kzmu.org, sciencemoab.org, iTunes, or Stitcher. The music is by Jeremy Spalding. Funding is provided by the BYU Charles Red Center for Western Studies. And the show is produced by Peggy Hodgkins and KZMU.